Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Education, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Kai Wortmann, the co-host of the channel, and I'm here today with Emil Boyesen to, to talk about his new book, Forms of Education, Rethinking Educational Experience Against and Outside the Humanist Legacy. That was an extremely stimulating read, so I'm really happy to have you, the author here. Emil, welcome to the New Books in Education. Thank you very much, Kai. It's a pleasure to be here. Before talking about the book, can you maybe start off by saying a little bit about your background? Background. What brought you into education? So my, my background was actually in literature. So my first degree was in literature. And then my second degree, my PhD, was in literature and philosophy. And then as I was studying philosophy and, and thinking about all sorts of things, as you do when you study philosophy, I started to think about the social impact of the works that I was studying, the ideas that I was studying. And it became obvious to me that I didn't really feel as at home in a philosophy department as I might have first thought. And a job came up in the education department at the university that I was um, doing my PhD in, which is the University of Winchester, where I am now. And um, I heard on the grapevine they were looking for a theoretical person. And without too much experience in the field of education, I applied for the job. And I think I was I was convincing enough at least to get the job. And then from then on, uh, this was, you know, 10, 11 years ago now, I've been totally addicted to studying education, thinking about education, but most of all, um, trying to apply serious philosophical thought to educational concepts and practices and experiences um and that that's what's brought me to where i am now and yeah now i'm a i am ai am a reader in education in an education department in winchester and uh, so so that was how you came uh, to education as a discipline and and what kind of questions uh, are you before uh, like uh, going to into details about your book but what kind of of general questions are the most interesting for you in education as, as, a, as, a, as a field more generally? So I really irritate people with my answer to this question because it's never what they expect. So, so often when you ask an educationalist, what, you know, what are they most interested um, when it comes to thinking about education? And they'll reply with some specific question around curriculum or practice or something like that. I'm really irritating in that um, my, my, my answer to that question is what is education? And I'm really interested in trying to figure out what it is, how broadly we can understand it, and what that means for how we practice it and how our society is organized and how we consider our development or non-development as individuals. I mean, I could go into that a lot more deeply, as I'm sure I will be able to when I talk about the book a bit more. But, um, but that's the, the, the fundamental question for me is, what is education? And to me, that is, it, it, it means that education becomes not just an object of critique or study or philosophical uh, analysis, 
but actually also you read it back into the philosophy itself. You know, what was the education that produced my ability to philosophize in this way? You know, what because philosophy itself as a discipline or as a practice is also a product of education. So philosophically, for me also, as well as educationally, the most interesting question is what is education? That's the the philosophical question, right? What is X, Y, Z? So, so let us start with 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 your books, uh, with your book, um, and maybe with the title. Uh, I, I read it again: "Forms of Education: Rethinking Educational Experience Against and Outside the Humanist Legacy." And what is the the humanist legacy in education? Good question. So, it, and, and yeah, sorry for the long title. I, I, it's it's one of those titles where you sort of try to make sure that you cover enough of what you're talking about, so it's not misleading. But that's why I wanted the the, the punchy main title. I was I was lucky to be able to keep that. So, um, but the, but the humanist legacy, I think, is is I think I go with a relatively common understanding of what the humanist legacy is, which is. A legacy that was developed primarily in the 15th and 16th century in Europe uh, throughout the Renaissance, so through the Renaissance humanists, where they were inheriting some of the principles and ideas and even practices of the ancient Roman uh, philosophers and it really educationalists. You know, um, and 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 what they did was they they took some of those practices and they applied that to schooling in such a way um, and at such a time when schooling was being expanded that they could really, I guess, define what education has come to mean for subsequent generations. So what the humanist legacy in education is, is an intellectualized and formalized practice of education stemming from ancient Rome, coming through the European Renaissance and then into educational practice, you know, European style educational practice, as it has now come to infect, <laughs> to use a slightly loaded term, more than a slightly loaded term, um, a, a, a very much a global way of thinking about education and what an educated subject is. So by subject, I mean an educated individual, what an educated individual is um, and what we should value in education and so on and so forth. But importantly, one of the important things about the humanist um, legacy is not just what it includes, because what it includes has changed in terms of content. So in the Renaissance, there was a lot of teaching of rhetoric. And now, for example, that was one of the primary objects of, of uh, Renaissance humanist education. Whereas now we don't teach rhetoric in any ordinary sense, but still so much of what we study has rhetorical components, which is, is something I could come back to. But, but, but the, the point is that there's this long tradition of a very narrow, relatively speaking, tradition of education, which I think still plays a huge part in how we think about and practice education today. And so the book is an attempt to describe what that is and then un unpack it and critique it and think about other ways of thinking about education which don't necessarily follow from that tradition in a direct manner, but that are nonetheless always going to be influenced by it because it's so pervasive. Okay, before we go, go into your alternatives you propose, maybe you can talk a bit about what the problem is with this legacy or, or what the problem uh, is that you see. Yeah, so I think there's quite a few problems and, and they connect to lots of critiques that we see in contemporary education. So lots of critiques in contemporary educational uh, theory or in educational policy critiques focus on 
um, the issues that we, you know, the the the, the problem, not the, you know, the critiques are mostly negative. Quite often, you know, trying to trying to figure out what why certain decisions have been made, why certain policies have been have been uh, put into play, um, and it's you know we can talk about neoliberal policy and things like that. But but what I try and do is actually take a step back from that and not just engage in a critique of contemporary educational norms as exhibiting neoliberal traits and therefore being terrible, which, you know, I, I think people are right to, to engage in those kinds of critiques. But what I try and do is take a step back from that and say, okay, well, what is the kind of education that we think would be better than this neoliberal form of education that we've developed um, and that we are so uncomfortable with and unhappy with? And often the answer to that question is a form of liberal education, which is very much about the development of the individual as a kind of singular competent being who through their education reaches some kind of enlightenment, really, I think is implied, that they otherwise wouldn't have achieved. And there's there's a lot, you know, there's a lot of problems with that because I think there's I mean, clearly, the, the first problem, of course, is that it creates a kind of aristocracy of education. So the people who receive the most substantial education are therefore somehow more enlightened than those who are not. And obviously, that's an oversimplification, but it's, it's, it's implicit in that logic. The other component of humanist education, and, and just to say that the, those components of humanist education that are common in the, the liberal tradition also are inherited, but in a very superficial form in the neoliberal tradition, which is about um, you know, qualifications and outcomes and uh, systems of accountability and so on. So, so it's, it becomes about how can you account for your development? How can you account for your value? How can you account for your worth? And we know so often that that worth is not given necessarily in terms of your individual ability or understanding or intellect. It's often given by what you've come to be associated with, which is something that is commonly connected to your background and your your ability to engage in particular circles, go to particular schools or particular universities and so on. So, so there's, there's, there's many issues when it comes to the humanist legacy, some of which are through its development in terms of the neoliberal tradition, which also comes from that legacy, absolutely. But also, I think some issues that come from the liberal tradition, which seems to create a very specific notion of um, educational value and what an educated person is, which then opposes it to the non-educated person, which is the non-educated person or the less educated person, either within our own societies or globally. And that causes all sorts of problems which relate to big issues um, that, you know, uh, hopefully are relatively apparent, such as racism or um, the the educational enforcement um, uh, that we see kind of globally at the moment where very westernized forms of educational attainment are seen as the gold standard and therefore imposed or seen as the the, the kind of end goal of people who are excluded um, from those systems and therefore we need to create systems which include them and I look at a lot of work in my book which analyzes that critiques that and suggests that possibly education is not the solution to our problems and, and one of the one of the main things that are questions that I kind of come back to when thinking about the humanist legacy in education is its absolute certainty in education as being the solution to pretty much everything. You know, education is the primary and sufficient 
means of making a person's life better, making them more valuable, making them more aware of themselves and making them a better contributor to society and so on and so forth. And I think part of what I want to do with my work in general, but with this book too, is puncture that notion that education is necessarily the solution to our problems. And certainly puncture the notion that it's the solution to lots of social issues that we face. So rather than, for example, governments dealing with quite expansive social issues, um, and it will, you know, we, could, we could name so many, uh, they suggest education is the solution. So education is the means by which we create equality. Education is the means by which we offer um, equality of opportunity or something like that. And then it becomes a kind of get out of jail free clause for a society to say, well, we are doing lots to be able to break the the, uh, the barriers that people face to living um, successful and happy lives because we offer education. And so the humanist legacy in education is almost this addiction that we have to the idea of education as um, a solution to our problems, personally and socially. I, I, I really like the the metaphor of education as being a firefighter right when whenever a social problem comes up uh, the educators and and the politicians say oh well the 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 solution must be edu more education and then uh, everyone says okay let's let's do more education and <laughs> it, it seems to be the, the the solution for for whatever problem uh, comes up mm. um, and uh, you instead propose that every person already is an educated person. Can you expand on that? That's exactly right. I'll, I'll come back to that in one second, because just to take your, your um, firefighter uh, metaphor, like I would say that, that the, I would agree with you completely, and I would go further and say that actually what's happening is that education is seen as the solution, but the firefighters are armed with petrol, you know, <laughs> rather than water. And what they do is they perpetuate those social, those social issues, those social divides, the issues that we find um, not on purpose, you know, it's not the educators. I mean, most educators, uh, well, yeah, that's too easy. To, that's an easy thing for a philosopher to say, but I mean, most educators, if I was a social scientist, I might be a little bit more careful about that. But it, it seems clear that a lot of educators are totally committed to uh, their students, making their lives better, doing things that are going to improve the quality of their life and, and social conditions more broadly. But What often happens and what seems to, well, it's you know, that, that is one thing I'm very aware of is the data around inequality. And we see how inequality just continues to increase. And it's, you know, it, the, uh, when it comes to wealth, when it comes to income, uh, when it comes to affordability of housing and for young people, you know, now with so few jobs, for example, in the UK or the US, uh, education is clearly not the solution to that problem, even though it then then institutions are often penalized precisely because they don't create employable students, whereas what's happening is there's problems with the economy and so on. So so anyway, so just to take your firefighters metaphor, but um, what you asked as well was about the educated subject and the, how uh, everyone is an educated subject. That was what you asked. Right. So this is, this is a big thing for me. Um, And it's another thing where I sort of, I, I guess I might annoy people with the same thing about, you know, what, what's my main question when it comes to education as well as education? Because I, I, I when people say, well, what do you, what, who do you think is an uh, educated subject? What does it constitute to be educated? And I would say, well, you know, to be alive is to be, you know, as a human being is to be educated. Um, and that's because I think so many experiences 
that exceed formal education or even kind of quasi formal education or, or things that we designate as informal education, but actually in quite formal ways. There's all forms of educational experience that expand far beyond that. You know, examples I like to give are the education that occurs between friends or the education that occurs between you and your interests or passions or the education that you experience, even just in relation to yourself um, as you grow and develop and not necessarily in a linear manner. And that's another thing about the educated person is that I don't think our educational journey is linear. And I think often... And psychologically, we can we can see how this makes sense as well, is that we can learn things and we can learn ways of being or, 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 or to be, you know, to be in a better state of mind or something like that. If we you know, were suffering from depression or something like that, we can learn to be in a better state of mind. But then that unravels. And then the things that we learn that allow us and the experiences that we learn are the ones that we need to be attracted to, then sometimes crumble and fall away and we fall back into depression or we fall back into bad habits or, well, for example, um, and I think that so education is, you know, if we see it as I'm going to you know, study and pass these exams or get this degree and accumulate this knowledge and these certificates and so on and so forth, it's very easy to see education in a linear fashion or as the development of a particular skill, for example, where you learn a skill and then you develop that skill and, you know, you become really good at that. Those are very kind of limited ways of thinking about education. But for me, education expands far beyond that and extends into all of our relations, which aren't just relations between people, but us, but between us and objects, between us and our thoughts, between us and our dreams. You know, um, I think our dreams uh, can educate us as well. And I think, yeah, there's been some, obviously some very famous and very interesting writing on that. So you you said that um, to to be to be alive is to means to be educated, but is then uh, is life education. Uh, is it is it like the same or is really education a part of life and and there is still something else going on in life apart from education so i can see that at, uh, uh, potentially uh, all, all kinds of uh, experiences in life can be educational mm. but i wonder whether you 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 hold the that that all experiences are uh, per se educational I think that, I mean, to me, that's the kind of crucial crux question. Um, and it's, I, I, I kind of dive into that a bit in, in, in the book, as you know. Um, and it's, it, it's, it's, it's a difficult one because I don't want to say yes. I don't want to say yes, all experiences are educational. And it, you know, it, that, that's, that, that opens everything up. And it means that education becomes a non-concept and it becomes kind of irrelevant. And then how do we distinguish between um, what's educational and what's not? But then I then I really think about it some more and I go, why not? Why not expand it in that way? And instead of and, and of course, that makes it then more complicated. And it means that we have to say, well, okay, so yeah. So if we're saying that all experiences have the potential to be educational, what are the different kinds of educational experiences that we can have? And in what ways are they differently educational? Because I think a lot of work in philosophy of education or educational theory that tries to either implicitly, sometimes explicitly, but usually more implicitly, answer the question, what is education? Try to come up with like a limited notion of what that is. And I, I think, I, I, I guess I, I'm not so afraid of, I mean, I'm a little bit afraid of that um, in terms of what that means for how we limit 
our thought and our practice and our philosophy when it comes to apply to other things as well. But I guess for me, I, I, I don't mind doing that, but only if it's a really, really broad notion of what education is. So instead of creating a constrained notion of what educational experience might be and saying, well, this is what educational experience is, this is how it educates the person, this is what an educated person is, and giving it in definitive terms, I'd rather open it up completely and say, well, if we think of every experience as possibly educational, what are the different kinds of education that we can experience? And to me, that's, it, it's, it's, it, it's, a, it's the trickiest answer because it's, because it's not saying that there are clearly experiences that are not educational. Because I just don't know if there are. I, I, I think that we can, we can see you know, these very minor experiences we have have quite profound influence on our psyche when they become repetitive, for example. So I, I think, like, for example, the, 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 the coronavirus pandemic. I mean, I hate <laughs> the fact that I've brought it up because everyone's so fed up with it, not least you know, us, I'm sure. But, but, but there are so many aspects of our lives that have changed over the last year and because of that and they're obvious ones they're ones where we've literally had to learn how to change our behaviors literally had to change our practices and um and therefore you know almost become different people as teachers or students for example um you know through through online means of education but there are also lots of tiny little things that we might not think of as being educational, but that have changed our psyche, that have changed who we are. And if we change our psychic economy, if we change our psyches, if we change our um, ego, you know, in whatever way that, and our unconscious, of course, as well, if we change them, even out of our control, isn't that education? If our psychic economy is transformed, isn't that a form of education? And I suppose that would be my question and my provocation. Obviously, the caveat to that is there are many educational experiences that within, if we say that every experience has the possibility of becoming educational, that really aren't very interesting or that aren't worth study or aren't worth debate or, you know, so on and so forth. But I guess what I'm interested in is really figuring out just because they're like, you know, there are so many experiences doesn't mean that there aren't lots of those kinds of educational experiences which are excluded from our more traditional conception of what education is, which are interesting, which are helpful, which are useful to understand in terms of education and in terms of how we are formed as individuals, as subjects. Right. So, so I, I really read your book as an attempt of, of broadening the notion of education. Um, and uh, uh, you, you, you give the, you describe education as the, formation and deformation of the non-stable subject so uh, maybe this the, the solution could be that not not every experience change the, the the way you are the way you you, you think about the world the, the way you think about yourself the the vocabulary you use to describe yourself and and the people around you but every, every experience potentially can can be education right and and i really like this um impetus of you to to um to go against a, a constraint of uh, conceptualizing education as only institutionalized or only uh, via an intention, right? That's also a common motive, the, the intention to change the other person 
or even I think uh, you also uh, argue against uh, the, the um um, co the concept of education that always includes two people, right? Teacher-student, classic, uh, classic example. That the the relation between the teacher and the student, uh, whatever happens there, that is educational. And instead, you 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 describe, for example, what I really liked is that about educational space. So uh, you write an an educational space is not just a space where education happens; it is space. It is a space which educates. So it is not necessarily another person, but it can be anything really. The, the, the space, an object, a thing, a thought, a dream. And, and okay, now I, I, I cannot think about this uh, a question, but <laughs> that's what I really liked about your, your book. Do you want well, to say great. something, yeah, no, no, <laughs> something yeah, no, no. to this? Or? <laughs> no, 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 that's, that, that's great. And I think you focus in on a really important part of what I've been um, talking about and interested in in, in the book and, and also since since uh, writing the book. And, and it is this notion of educational space as being much broader than, say, a classroom or a relationship between a teacher and a student. Um, and I, I think, I mean, there, there's... There's something to connect it back to the point that you were making before about how some some experiences are you know maybe do affect or change the subject. I think my 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 uncertainty around that is and and I, I agree with you. I think I think yeah, I think you're, you're you're largely right there. But I think there's also many experiences that we have as individuals which are, for example, part of our educational space. You know, part of the space which educates us the context within which we, you know, expansively exist that educates us that we don't necessarily know or understand or could turn into words or formalize. And so in a strange way, like it's, it's a risk because as a philosopher, you kind of, you don't want to say, well, everything is one thing and everything is possibly this or whatever, because you want to be clear, you want to be definitive. And when you come to talk about education, you also want to be clear, you want to be definitive. But I think there's, there's so many things which, which, educate us in a way that we can't quite grapple with or understand. And I, I think that's why research is so important, is precisely to be able to figure those things out. And I think it's one of the reasons why, when I think about educational space, I then go on to talk about conversation, because conversation, like the, you know, the one that we're having now, is, and, and you know, all the many different kinds of conversations that we can have, um, they, they are a, a, quite a wonderful means of getting towards particular kinds of learning, particular kinds of education. And I'm not one of these um, educationists who's afraid of the word learning, I guess maybe because I'm so far removed from <laughs> being too concerned about uh, schooling as the only means of education. I'm not so uh, concerned about learnification, for example, but that's another that's another issue. Um, but I, I, th there's something that happens in conversations, for example, which aren't dialogues, which aren't a form of dialectic, which aren't a form of, you know, you asking me questions and me answering them and then you changing your mind and me changing my mind and we develop in, in a kind of um, dialectical fashion. Conversation, I think, is much looser and freer and more open and less about the individual um, developing and more about the thought within the conversation developing, which is something that I take from a philosopher called Maurice Blanchard. And I think that that's why conversations are such 
useful devices for being able to understand education in a broader fashion, because we see ourselves change, even just within the context of a conversation. And we see how we often come upon all sorts of strange or interesting subjects um, of of, uh, conversation um, without necessarily trying to do so. And I, 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 I don't know. I mean, certainly for me over this last year, I've, I've because I've been by myself um, for, the, for the large part of it, conversations with people on the phone have been a huge, um, an important component of my life. And it's interesting because we, we often want to speak to each other, not necessarily because we have something to say, but because we want to talk. And why do we want to talk? And maybe it's because we want to feel ourselves. And I guess this is, you know, this, this this is leaning towards quite complex psychological and philosophical territory. So I try not to go down the rabbit hole too far. But I think there's something very important about how we find ourselves in our conversations with other people in unanticipable ways sometimes, in ways that we can't anticipate. And that's it's 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 something that we could extend to lots of experiences. But one of the reasons why, you know, I do think we can begin to designate between more or less educational experiences in a loose fashion is that some experiences are quite intensively educational. So and some are clearly decided, you know, it has decided that they should be that way. It's intended, it's intentional, as, as you were talking about before. It's a very intentional form of education, therefore very intense. And you must learn this, 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 and this, and we will examine you on it to make sure you've learned it. And therefore, you know, you will have um, been educated in this way. Whereas I think that that's one way of having an intensive form of intentional education. But an intensive form of education by another means is, for example, having a conversation with someone because that even though you don't necessarily think of it as intensely educational if there's a back back and forth if there's a kind of development of your own thinking as you're speaking and i you know i'm, I'm I, I know i'm not alone when i say i often don't know what i think until i say it i think you just, i think a lot of people have that experience of thinking what's well, until i formalize the word the thoughts as words i'm like and i say something sometimes and i go yes that's exactly what I've been thinking and trying to formalize in my own mind. And it's having the opportunity, like this one, for example, where you can formalize your thought and sort of crystallize it a little bit, at least for a moment. That allows you to figure out who you are and what you think and what you believe and you know how you are in relation to others. But the important factor when it comes to that formation of yourself is that it's a, a deformable formation. Just because you've been educated to think that or become that or be that person in at that time and that place and in relation to this person, that doesn't mean that's always going to be what you think or always who you feel that you are. And something that I talk to my undergraduates about a lot, I get an example that I give them of how we change as subjects and how our education um, forces all kinds of different reactions from us is, you know, I, I say to them, you know, what's what's the what's the difference between how you are when you're with your friends who like to, you know, go out and party or something like that, as opposed to how you are when you're with your family and your grandparents or something like that. You know, how do you change? What kind of subject do you become? What forms of um, education are you more open to in those particular contexts? Like, how are you, uh, like, what are you open to talking about? How are you opening, open to developing your thinking, developing who you are in the one context as opposed to the other? So yeah, so that's uh, that's some of that at least. It, yeah, another aspect I, I really like that you you really emphasize um, 
the the, the passive side of education because often uh, especially nowadays er education is only thought of as being active uh, um, doing something as you said you know learning a new skill which always implies that you have to be an, an active student that's uh, also um, at least in Germany something that is uh, only positive right it, 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 and passive pa pass um, to be passive is always thought as uh, negative because then you don't know you don't listen in the classroom or or, or whatever whereas you you really explore the, the notion of 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 um, uh, being open for educational experiences without um, trying to get them right and um, because you you told the uh, uh, The, the story about uh, your students I, in in my in my um, uh, seminars I in in the first sessions I I sometimes um, uh, tell them that that this might be a, a beautiful educational experience for them but not because of what I say or the text we read or something like this but maybe they will meet the love of their life in this seminar right and this 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 will be the the most significant change in 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 their life and the most uh, educational one uh, to which um to which uh, reading texts and and uh, doing uh, uh, scientific uh, discussions is is nothing against um and but you cannot control this right you have no it's not that you can say okay today i will uh, meet the love of my life you have to be open for for the possibility to occur so to speak absolutely and, and uh, I, i really like that kai i think that's great um and i, I would say yeah absolutely to that 100 and I, i also add that what we teach for example isn't necessarily what's learned so i mean a really easy example that i could give and you could extend it to, to almost anything um is you know you teach a novel And there's certain themes that you want to talk about in the novel, and there's certain um, forms of critique that you want to use to, to critique the novel and talk with the students about it or something like that. But actually, what they like is a particular description of one of the characters of their experiences, and that has a profound effect on them and changes the way that they think about a relationship that they have, you know, with their, you know, their their, their cousin or something. I mean, you know, just making it up. But but there's there's so many things. Um, especially, you know, and obviously in literature, maybe that's a, too easy of an example, but in so many forms of education, um, which we could limit to formal settings, of course, but, but, but also much more broadly, there are all of these things which can, for some strange reason, can just get under your skin change who you are, change who you think, change how you relate to other people. For example, you know, being open to things uh, 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 through the means of a kind of ethical passivity. It, what that dictates is a, a, a not always aggressively being certain about what you're going to take from a particular kind of context. Whereas there's an emphasis very much in culture today, and I think in, it's maybe this is something that has been around for a very long time. You know, maybe this is this is kind of why we go back to to, to classical Rome when we're thinking about um, the humanist legacy, for example, where you want to control everything. And you want to know what you're getting out of something. And you always have to be active because if you're not active, you're not making the most of your life. And if you're not active, you're not making the most of the opportunities that have been given to you and so on and so forth. 
But it's just a, like it's an existential mistake because you still have experiences regardless of whether or not you're active in some kind of superficial sense your your brain is kind of always working you know your psyche is always working <laughs> you can't you can't switch your psyche off you can't switch you know your unconscious off that never stops working so you because of that there's 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 activity in a much broader sense kind of going on all the time which is what opens you up and this is maybe why i say you know if you're alive you're educated because because if you're alive you're having experiences which are forming your subjectivity which are forming who you are and how you think and how you feel and how you relate to others and so for me yeah i yeah i i, I, I don't know if i want to go on the too much down that rabbit hole but but that's that's yeah i, I totally agree um with with uh, your example as like this is this is the point when we're thinking about Content. Like I, I make that, you know, I always talk about the point where so much education happens in the corridors at school. You know, corridors are very interesting parts of schools because they're not educational areas. And yet so many conversations happen there. So many pieces of gossip are shared or, or, or and negative, negative experiences happen in them as well. And they're schools are designed of course to be kind of conditioning tools and then we have you know very advanced forms of of of, um schools that are being developed which are much more open and trying to trying to kind of open out from that more disciplinary form of architecture but both of those forms of educational context even without a single lesson going on in them even without a, a, a a teacher present when the student walks through the school they have a particular kind of experience that has some some effect on them and this, this, there's two things that are going on. So firstly, that educational space, you know, this very limited formal educational space is having an educational effect on the subject. But another thing that have, can have an educational effect on the subject is if they become conscious of the work that that building is doing on them. So if you become conscious of the fact that so many things in your life are educating you, are changing who you are, are forming your subjectivity or doing some work to deform your subjectivity, you become much more able to, like, this is the irony, is you become much more able to be aware of who you're becoming and who you are and what matters and so on and so forth than you would be if you're really always working with intention and you're always thinking, okay, well, this is what I want to do and this is, you know, by being more open, by being more um, passive in some ways, you can actually become more critical and you can actually become more aware of what's going on and, and how you're changing as a person. But anyway, yeah, so I won't dwell on that anymore. So, so uh, I, I want to stay on uh, with this uh, motive of passivity a, a little, and then I, I promise I will come back to your to your uh, book and also to your title. Um, but th th this is a, probably a very uh, German um, uh, question. But uh, actually, the person who first used the word uh, Bildung, uh, Meister Eckhart, right? Um, he he thought of Bildung as totally passive because you you have to to um uh, make you free for god to come inside you so it's not something that, that you can actively pursue but you you have to wait until it happens <laughs> and and being being open to the um uh unforeseen A miracle, the, the the wonder that God finally enters your life, is um, uh, the only way he claims to become uh, 
the, the picture of God, which is Bildung, right? The, from the build, the, the, the word for picture, the German word for picture. So, um, well, this is a, is, is a bit theological, but I, I think th this really has a huge, huge potential for, for uh, offering different ways to think about education than, than uh, the, the, the most... Uh, Uh, hegemonic ways <laughs> today. Well, I, I love that example. I actually, I quite like Meister Eckhart uh, and I like some of that mystical um, Christian thought, even though I'm not, not a Christian myself, but but I, I, I find that mystical Christian thought is is often, it doesn't really, I don't know, it, it's, it's, it's often very philosophical and very open and quite, in strange ways, kind of existential, but but that's, that's, that's a, the, the complex the, theological, philosophical discussion, which I, you know, this isn't the place to have it but I'm, I'm glad that you, you brought it up because that's interesting and this is an example of you know I haven't thought about my straight car in years I remember reading some of his stuff years ago and then when I was reading uh, Dag Hammarskjöld's um, Markings uh, which is an excellent book you know Dag Hammarskjöld who was the um, Secretary General of the UN he wrote this very interesting book um, which which well anyway it's it, it's it, it's yeah it's it's worth worth reading as a um, an analysis of someone's subjectivity, which is so distinct from who they are as a public figure. Um, but anyway, and he was a big reader of Eckhart, so I ended up looking up Eckhart and reading some Eckhart. So, so that's, that's enough of a story around that. But I, I, I think what's interesting is that, yeah, I, 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 I think what you describe, I mean, obviously it has this theological undertones, which I wouldn't want to, to take in that direction, but I still think it's interesting and this idea of building as passivity, because of course that's not what building has become and the way that building is now discussed. And obviously building isn't actually, in, in the UK and the US, it's not actually a concept that we use very often, even in the more restricted and, and contemporary sense. But even um, from my understanding, at least, and it's you know it's it's not actually a, a, a subject of deep analysis for me. But uh, building has become quite a, um, uh, a, a well, a much more restrained and even active concept for subject to describe subject formation. So even though it's distinct from other forms of education, it's I don't know it. it Yeah, it, it, it's maybe strayed from Meister Eckhart's original intentions. Is, is would that be a correct assessment? I, I think I think to this is a, the perfect uh, uh, way of coming back to to the title because I would claim that it is actually the the human's legacy that completely turned the uh, the term around, and uh, uh, by uh, Wilhelm von Humboldt who conceptualized Bildung more like uh, in a gym. Right, there is the world, and then we have to work with the world in order to improve ourselves, to make ourselves better to um to um build skills and ways of knowing the world and ways of knowing but it, it's it's almost as as uh, training a muscle <laughs> the, the, the 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 world is only the object of our uh, the, the the subject's will to to improve and um uh, this is i think what you want to uh argue against and also a way of thinking about education that you offer uh, some um, alternatives to and uh, this brings us back to the title against and outside uh, the humanist legacy and maybe you can um, tell a bit we talked about uh, some of the motives but maybe you can give a bit of an overview of your attempt of being 
outside of this legacy. Yeah, no, that's that's. That, no, I'd, I'd love to do that. And just quickly, just to kind of go back on your gym analogy, um, and another another one which which commonly comes into play when talking about education, which is you know seeing the person as growing like a plant or a flower or something like that. These very linear forms of development that are based around really particular forms of sustenance or or action, um, and. You know, the, 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 what, 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 what doesn't a muscle or a plant have? It doesn't have a psyche, you know? <laughs> and so, like, it doesn't have a psychic economy. So that's what makes us so complicated. And that's what makes our education such a mess um, and also so exciting because we're not these beings who have this ability to simply, or these, you know, these muscles or you know, limbs, that we have these limbs, but that's not what makes us interesting. Um, so, so yeah, so, so, I'd, so I'd, I, I, I think that's it's, and there's so much damaging um, rhetoric. I think partly around things like this, you know, building your mind like you would a muscle in the gym, which is something that's you know, people still talk about things like this, and it was actually quite influential in the 19th century in the, in England um, around the foundations of um, compulsory schooling. Uh, there was a lot of rhetoric around the body being, um, the, you know, the mind being like the body and the education of the spirit being like the education of the body and all this kind of stuff. Um, and, and yeah, and that plant metaphor I also hate. So, yeah, so 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 these are very restricted. And I think, uh, you know, if, if we want to talk very straightforwardly or give a kind of basic um, distinction between the kinds of uh, education, you know, education within the humanist legacy, that would be this model of, you know, almost like the mind as the bodybuilder or something like that, you know, and, and you know, you build yourself up and make yourself, you know, um, clever and skillful and able to engage in all these aspects of social life and all this kind of stuff. Uh, and and in, in a manner that's very restricted and, and has to be based on like really particular stages and content. So, so like, you know, Let's say, you know, the humanist legacy is the bodybuilder. Sorry, this is ridiculous, I know, but maybe entertaining for some. Um, maybe horrendous for others. But, but let's say that. Let's say that's what it is. It's this, it's this notion, um, but, but you know, very connected to what you describe as Humboldtian builder. Um, and, and we're not just in, in Germany, but in the way that that's been adapted or developed in other, other countries as well. So what's outside, you know, what's outside of that? And I, as I've kind of made reference to several times before, I think for me, what's outside uh, the humanist legacy is actually what's inside our minds, <laughs> which is the psychic economy, and which is the fact that there are um, things going on in our minds and in the relations that we have with others that have this kind of feedback loop with our minds. There are relations with the ob objects that we encounter or the spaces that we exist in or yeah, we exist in and as in some ways as well that really shape who we are and so thinking of education and specifically educational experience um you know i, I put the emphasis on educational experience because i kind of want to say um i'm not just talking about practice you know of course when you talk when you say education people think oh well you're talking about educational practices but actually i want to emphasize that it's the experience that is the, the important thing there so that's why i put that in the title um, so when we're thinking about education and educate, well, let's say educational experience outside of the humanist legacy, what that and 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 one of the things that I do is kind of say, well, you know, we can't really get outside it because it's so pervasive. It, 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 it's it's uh, you know octopus tentacles kind of reach into so many um, aspects of our lives. And and one one important factor, which I always like to say this before I go into discussing the outside, is say, well the means by which I'm able to define an outside 
partly come from and are inherited from the humanist legacy. So like I, as an educated subject in this kind of vague general sense, am also a relatively educated subject within the very restricted sense of the humanist legacy as well. And I'm putting the education that I've received as a result of that legacy into practice by analysing and critiquing the thing that I uh, also am. So, like it's, so, so there's, there's, there's a kind of, there's, there's a yet another feedback loop um, in this and a necessary self-critique that has to be undergone when considering these things and that we can't simply jump outside the humanist legacy. We can't exit it because it's, uh, it shapes who we are. But what we can do, I think, is think about the experiences that are in some ways not defined as education within the remit of education today, what I call the humanist legacy and the influence of the humanist legacy. And in so doing, we begin to open our minds to educational experiences that puncture, disrupt, offer opportunities, give us optimism for other ways of being in and of ourselves, but also in relation to other people. So what my hope is, and this is kind of, I do talk a little bit, I do do have some kind of utopian or quasi-utopian thought that I examine in this text. And it's that I, I, I believe that if we move towards considering experiences that exceed our traditional conception of education, and we move towards those experiences and think of them as educational, it unsettles the dominance and um, power, I think, as well, of those dominant modes of, of, of education. And it makes them kind of, it puts them on the same plane. It makes us really have to consider wh- why and when and how we put them into action. And if we even should sometimes or many times. And so that education that we experience outside of the humanist legacy, it's like, it's, it's everything that we don't define by that. You know, and this, this is why I end up being quite, open and 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 uh i guess open-minded and even yeah, i mean at the risk of sounding going back to the kind of very open-ended description of that all ex- experiences have the um possibility of becoming educational and and perhaps even are in a way that we can't understand um or that we wouldn't be able to put into put into words or whatever you know that's what i mean by the outside so so the, the, so <laughs> Simply in terms of a description, I would say the stuff we were talking about before is how we would describe the outside. You know, it is the experiences of education that aren't compartmentalized within the humanist legacy. But I have another reason for using that term, the outside. You know, I, 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 I'm, I'm saying outside, not just to say there are experiences outside the humanist legacy. I'm using that word because, and, and concerned about this outside, because I don't just think it's useful to say, yes, there are experiences that exceed the humanist legacy. I think it's important to understand the profound effect that they have on us and have on us as educated subjects. And I guess that there's some real work that, I, that I'm, I'm trying to do myself and that, that I, I'm seeing more and more people, you know, kind of wanting to do, which is really examining things that shape who we are that aren't that we have some control over and that we have uh, and that we that we can um shut in or shut out or be open to or not be open to or can um change for other people in positive or negative ways that really don't fit our ordinary conception of education or subject formation 
And because of that, I think it becomes difficult for us to um, think about the educated subject in, 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 a, in a sufficiently broad manner as to be able to understand them as people. And so what we tend to do, and the, uh, the irony, of course, is that I tell psychology in my book, but what we tend to do is we tend to psychologize or even pathologize individuals who don't succeed in the way that we have come to determine success in our societies. And I guess, I don't know, yeah, so, so, so the outside is, it, it's, it's something that exceeds our conventional way of thinking about education, so forms of education that you know, we've talked about at length, what those might be. So it's that. But it's also tr- kind of trying to say, well, maybe we need to take some ownership of this outside as well. And that doesn't mean kind of um, uh, pull it into the humanist legacy and say, okay, well, we need to accumulate this and teach more about this. Quite the opposite, actually. It's more beginning to understand it and therefore maybe beginning to find ways to improve the conditions of social and individual life more broadly in a manner that doesn't just rely on traditional forms of education. So one of the the notions you offer uh, outside the humanist legacy is the one of uh, conversation. And I found this, uh, it's the last chapter in your book, and I found this really interesting and stimulating And maybe also a bit irritating because one could easily think of a, of a, a way to conceptualize conversation in a very humanistic way, right? As dialogue between uh, individuals or uh, the 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 um, back and forth b- between the subject and the world. Uh, but but you you offer quite a quite a different uh, concept. Can you maybe uh, talk about this? Yeah, so I mean, I mentioned it briefly before, and it's, it's, I'm glad to be able to come back to it because I, I, I think it's a, a crucial component of the book, and it's a really important aspect of the, the understanding educational experience for me. Um, and I think what conversation, kind of what I was saying before about how conversation doesn't necessarily develop the subject in an obvious sense, in the same way dialogue or dialectic would, it doesn't necessarily create an understanding or a shared understanding or a conclusion. What it does is it allows the subject, the subjects, you know, the, 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 the interlocutors, let's say, rather than subjects, to move with their thought. And what for Blanchot and Maurice Blanchot, the, the philosopher that I, that I kind of draw on and um, to, to be able to, to, to make some of these claims, what he argues is that, that thought is what moves within the conversation. And that's important because... It's not the subject that develop, that develops, it's thought that develops. And the subject can be formed and deformed in that context. We can you know, change our reactions, who we are, what our mood is, uh, you know, all of these things within the, 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 within the kind of you know, <laughs> the, the designation of what we might call the conversation. And it's, it's an opportunity, really. Conversations are an opportunity to engage in a kind of dissimulation of yourself. So not a shoring up of yourself, not a kind of, okay, well, let's have this dialogue or dialectic where, you know, I'm going to grow as an individual and, you know, you're going to help me, you know, which is the kind of typical kind of student teacher dialogue or something like that. But rather where, I mean, somewhat obviously, and we know this, and even people who write about dialogue know this, is that, of course, the teacher can also be educated when teaching. You know, we know know this, right? So the teacher can learn from teaching. 
And in fact, I mean, that's ironically one of the things that Rousseau says, you know, is why one person should only ever teach one other person. Because what happens when you teach one other person, this says Jean-Jacques Rousseau in Emile, um, you know, he, he says uh, that you, a teacher should only ever teach one other person because what they'll do is they'll transpose the lessons that they've learned from teaching that one child onto the next child that they teach. And that would be terrible because they should be able to be open and responsive to um, the, the individual child in a way that hasn't taken too much from the first um, education. I mean, it's, it's, I, I, just, I actually quite love that because it's such a crazy idea, but it kind of makes sense. And I, not that I particularly informed by, by Rousseau's thoughts, certainly not in my book, but, but it's, a, it's a kind of funny example of um, how once we begin to create a pattern of the way that we engage with other people, we begin to limit what we can then offer to that person and possibly impose too many of these restrictive ways of um, teaching or just relating onto other people. And I think what conversation, certainly in the way that Blanchot describes it and the way that I try and kind of pick it up, is it gets away from really any kind of formalized engagement with another person, whereas dialogue and dialectic, you know, and we know this from the history of philosophy as well, when we look at the you know, various forms of dialogue that exist, you know, some more famous than others, um, exist throughout the history of philosophy, where there's this very clear mechanism of development. And often, you know, as in the Platonic dialogues, there's clearly the one who knows, and then there are the, the one or ones who are being taught to know through the dialogue. So they, you know, in the end, they usually end up agreeing or you know, kind of going, oh, yes, well, of course, Socrates, you're right. You know, and, and that's that's a kind of very limited form of dialogue, of course. But then you've got more complex forms of dialectical dialogue that develop much later as well, and which are directed towards um, often still the same thing, really, which is the development of the subject in a particular way, sometimes two subjects developing together. Um, but but it's it's always linear and it's always connected to this idea of developing, formalizing, limiting the subject in some way. Whereas I think conversation, it breaks down, it kind of because it breaks down our defenses in some way. Because conversational thought isn't necessarily, it can be confrontational, I guess, in, in certain instances. But one thing that it absolutely isn't, and I'm at risk of becoming right now, is monologic. So what happens in dialogue is that it often, what a dialogue is or a dialectic is, is alternating monologues. I think this, I think this, you know, this is my position on this, this is my position on this. And, and that's, that's you know, that, that's seen as kind of a good philosophical model sometimes. Um, whereas really what conversation does is it's not about what I think, it's about where the conversation goes. And if you stop worrying about trying to get your point across and you start thinking about, well, where can your thought take you? Where can these words that are available to us, where can your responsiveness and my responsiveness to the thoughts that you're having and I'm having, where can that take us? And obviously, I mean, well, I don't know. I mean, I guess it's obvious to me, maybe not to others. But that's so much more exciting than coming into a conversation and know exactly what your, your conversation or dialogue or just an interaction with another person and just saying what you think and they think what they think and you get no further um, often. Or, or you end up having the same, you know, quote unquote conversation every time you speak to someone and it becomes incredibly dull because they're not willing to move with the thought or you're not willing to move with the thought. Um, so yeah, so that, that's that, that's why I think conversation is such a valuable educational context, and also such a, um, a kind of touchstone context of educational experience for thinking educational experience outside the humanist legacy, because it's so removed from any linear development subject, and often it's precisely where it 
puts into question some of the things that you take for granted or some of the ways of being that you have begun to just, you know, or not begun, but that the, the you've, the, you've developed and therefore you um, maybe sometimes would find it useful to dissimulate in some way, to evaporate slightly and to, to find, maybe test out other ways of thinking or other ways of being. So, so that's what I see conversation partly as offering the opportunity to do. Well, Emil, we've taken up a lot of your time and I hope uh, the, this this uh, interview was not too unconversational. Uh, but my last question is, what are you working on uh, right now? So, uh, yeah, thank you, Kai. And thank you so much for having me on the program. It's been really wonderful to be able to talk about these things. And um, yeah, it's yeah, a real pleasure. And your questions have been fantastic. And, and not ones that I would have anticipated, actually, um, all of them. So, so, so that's been really nice. Um, but what I'm working on now, um, um, well, uh, the, one of the main things I'm working on now is actually in my role at the university as a, um, one of the research managers, I'm working on what's called the REF submission, which is this uh, research excellence framework that UK universities engage in, which is quite time consuming um, and has taken me away from my research. It's, it's an interesting process and I've learned a lot from it. But, um, but I'm very much looking forward to getting back to some research. But I have been working on a couple of papers which are testing out um, some new ideas. Um, and one of the papers, it's actually just been accepted for publication in a journal called Educational Philosophy and Theory. Um, it's, it's on educational resistance. And what it tries to look at is how we might see um, resistance to all sorts of things. And you know, the paper can cover that ground more thoroughly than, than I will here. Um, how we can see resistance as educational. How we can see resisting sometimes education itself, certainly in its dominant forms, how we can see that resistance as educational in itself. And so I, I'm look, I've looked into that concept a little bit. I'm also writing a, um, a paper on ignorance at the moment. I read a paper called Positive Ignorance um, a couple of years ago, and I've been asked to, to follow that up um, for, for a collection um, uh, on uh, the vices and virtues in education and kind of turning them on their heads. It's an interesting collection, actually. Um, and um, one of the things that I'm trying to do with both of these papers um, is uh, do something a little bit new with my own work. And one of the things I'm trying to do is incorporate sound a little bit into these articles. Um, and what that means is having using sound as a means of doing philosophical research and as a kind of appendix to the more traditional philosophical research that I'm doing in the articles themselves. And that's something, I mean, I write about it a bit more in the articles, but maybe this is something that might interest a couple of listeners that might go, oh, well, I didn't, I wasn't so interested in what he was saying about the book, but this thing he says about sound, that might be interesting. So, you know, it's, it's, it's something that I'm exploring. I say a lot more about that in these papers um, because, uh, yeah, I, I also work in sound and music. So this is another interest of mine. So I'm, I'm trying to find ways to, to show how, um, and this connects to, to some of the things that I've talked about when it comes to experience and educational experience more broadly, seeing living in sound as a kind of form of educational experience. So, yeah, so that's what I'm working on now. Well, thank you, Emil. That, that sounds uh, very interesting. And, and thank you very much for joining me on New Books in Education. Thank you very much, Kai. It's been an absolute pleasure.